I invite you to turn to your Old Testament towards the end of the book of Hosea. If you have not been with us, uh, just to give you perspective, we began the year by looking at the Ten Commandments. So we were in about one verse a Sunday, one to two verses a Sunday. After that series is over, then we went to a series in 1 Peter, where we looked at one section, scholars call it one pericope a week. And now we're moving to a series for three months where we're going to look at one book per Sunday for the next 12 weeks. We're going to look at what we call the minor prophets. All three of these styles, a verse or a phrase or a section or a whole book, historically in the history of preaching would fit the definition of expository preaching. The root word of expository is expose. And expository preaching means to take a section or a portion of scripture, a phrase, a word, or a paragraph, or a book, and then expose the meaning of the text to the people, and then summon them, summon all of us, to submit to it, and to believe it and obey it. And so today we're starting an expository series, but we're going to be taking one book per Sunday. So today we will take the book of Hosea. Next week we will be in Joel. And then in Amos, and on it goes. And the goal of this is to expose us to maybe a section of the Bible that many of us don't spend a lot of time in. Prophets are rich. And I am very expectant as we look at this series, what God will teach us and show us. So, the book of Hosea this weekend, as we do dive into this, 12 of these, we call them the minor prophets. And they run from Hosea all the way to the end of the Old Testament called Malachi. By the way, the Hebrew Old Testament doesn't end in Malachi. It ends in Chronicles, just Chronicles. There's no one and two Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible, but it ends in Chronicles. And if you read Chronicles, you might see that because it begins with a chronology and is an overview of Israel's history. It's a great book to have at the end of the Hebrew canon. I've titled the, or given the subtitle for this series, God's Word in Troubled Times. And the reason is this, these 12 books that we will be looking at offer great hope and great perspective to God's people whenever they're living in troubled times. And so let us prepare, whether you view this as troubled times or not, or they are to come, or personal troubled times for you, this is rich stuff to dwell in. We're going to focus, as I said, on one per Sunday, and today we dive into Hosea, a book that tells admittedly a strange story about an incredible God and his unshakable love for his own, his people. There are 14 chapters in this book. We're going to move along at a crisp clip, but I think you'll see the flow of the book as we go. It easily divides these 14 chapters into two parts. Chapters 1 to 3, Hosea's marriage, and then chapters 4 to 14, the message coming out of the book. So with that, we're going to dive, first of all, in the first three chapters. And to do that, I want to step back, and as I often do when I start a series, and do an introduction. So I want to do a bit of an introduction to the minor prophets. We're going to go to Bible college here for a few minutes. So I hope you're taking notes, and I hope that this would be helpful to you. The books that we call the minor prophets, let's talk about them for a minute. They are 12 short prophetic books at the end of the English Bible. They were written in ancient Israel over a period of about 300 years in Hebrew, for the most part in Hebrew. 
and they cover a range from about 750 B.C. to about 450 B.C. So again, written about, when you, when you move from Hosea to Malachi, you're covering about 300 years. In the original Hebrew Bible, the Bible that still exists today is the Hebrew text, they are one book called, not real creatively, the 12th. <laughs> That's all they're called, just the 12th. And they compile one book. The prophets are actually, if you look at the prophets in the Hebrew Bible, they're actually two divisions. There's two groupings. There's what scholars call the former prophets. This would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then we have what we call the latter prophets, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And even though we call the Twelve the minor prophets, their message is anything but minor. It was actually probably Augustine, St. Augustine in the 4th century that gave him the nickname, the Minor Prophets. It's not a biblical name. And to some degree, it's, it's a misnomer. Their, their message is not minor compared to what we would call the major prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. It's called, or they're called the Minor Prophets due to word count, due to size. So the major prophets, those that are larger, longer books, the Minor Prophets, those that are not. Anytime you're dealing with any of the prophets... One of the central characteristics is the doctrine of God. That's why they are so good. And specifically, you get to the minor prophets, three characteristics of God are emphasized. They are his sovereignty, his absolute reign and jurisdiction, his ordaining of all things that come to pass for his glory over the nations, over rulers, over world events, and over our lives. That God foreordains anything that comes to pass for the good of his people in his glory. That's the first thing his sovereignty is emphasized. Another thing you'll see emphasized in the prophets, the holiness of God. This comes out over and over again. His absolute moral purity. His, what theologians call his otherness. His transcendence. His hatred of all things evil. Deceptive and wicked. And the third thing that comes out that really surprises a lot of God's people is the love of God. There's a very strong theme reoccurring emphasis on the love of God in the prophets, especially the minor prophets. His abiding love for his people, his hesed in Hebrew, his mercy, his loving kindness, his patience, even in their darkest hours. A couple other facts about the minor prophets. They are typically subdivided into two groups based on when they were written. And this is very helpful because obviously when a book was written, is a very important part of how you interpret the book. So, there's an event in the history of Israel called the exile. Some of you know of it, some of you don't. But it occurred over a 70-year period when the people of God, especially the lower couple tribes, I'll mention that in a minute, were taken to Babylon as prisoners of war. Obviously, a very traumatic time in the life of Israel. That, that kind of an event leaves a scar on a people for centuries. And the prophets that wrote before that, before that exile, that time of being taken as prisoners of war, we call them the pre-exilic prophets. Most of the minor prophets fall in that camp. But then there are a few who wrote after the exile, this 70-year traumatic exile, displacement, and we call them the post-exilic prophets. So sometimes 
and I'll be recommending some commentaries at the end of the sermon today. Sometimes when you're in the commentaries or in your, I hope you have a good study Bible and you can follow along and you're do, using that to dig and study, you will see these kinds of phrases, pre-exilic prophet or so-and-so was a post-exilic prophet. That's what it's talking about. There are only three post-exilic prophets among the minor prophets, and they are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The rest wrote before or before just barely going into the exile. The theme, let's talk about the theme. The overall theme of the prophets is really twofold. One, there's a theme about us and a theme about God. Us, that our choices have consequences. Your choices. Your choices on a daily basis are very real. Young people, you're accountable. Old people, the rest of us, you're accountable for your choices. And they have consequences. Sometimes intended, often unintended, but they have consequences and you will be morally accountable to God for your choices as they were. The other theme coming through this book is about God and a reminder of his judgments and his mercies. And lastly, let me say a word about genre. When it comes to hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible, you have to have not only when it was written, but what kind of literature are you dealing with? For example, if you read Lord of the Rings, or a Tom Clancy novel, or a romance novel, you're going to interpret it very differently, right? Obviously, you're dealing with different kinds of literature. Likewise in the Bible, it depends on the kind of literature, the genre, so to speak, of what you're dealing with. So the question is, well, what's the genre of the minor prophets? And the answer is they're very hard to categorize, they're hard to classify. They are not primarily narrative, although there's narrative in them. They're not primarily essay, although there's that. They're not primarily sermons, although there are sermons in here, bits of sermons. They're not primarily oracles or letters like Paul wrote. They're not primarily poetry, although there is poetry. In the, and they're not primarily apocalyptic, although there's apocalyptic, especially in Zechariah. So what are they? Well, when you ask Old Testament scholars and turn to the literature, the word that describes them the most that comes up is anthologies. <laughs> Meaning, think of an anthology in English. Anthology being a, 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 a summary or a collection of a writer's works. Some poems, some of his letters, some of his stories and essays. It's kind of a compilation of all of that. It's also important to note that the minor prophets have always been included in the Hebrew canon of Scripture. Always. They are in the Hebrew, not in the Septuagint, that was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but in the Hebrew Scriptures, they have always been considered part of God's sacred word. All right, that brings us to Hosea. The author of the book is the prophet Hosea. He lived about 700 years before Christ, and he is a contemporary of who? That also helps you interpret the book. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. So when you read any of those books, you're reading of events surrounding the life also of Hosea. Look at verse 1. Hope you have a Bible or a device open in front of you so you can see what the text says, because this is very important as we go through this today. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. You notice there's two separate sets of kings. I'll talk about that in just a second. But I want you to notice something first. Very often in the Bible, when a book opens or somewhere in the book, the author will take great pains to show you how the events he's writing about are anchored 
in world events, anchored in real history. Why? Because God is showing us this stuff really happened. Unlike the Hindu scriptures like the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, or unlike the Book of Mormon, which belongs to a cult, which doesn't record real events, the Bible is very specific and wants you to understand, and God is telling us, this stuff really happened. This took place in space-time history. The events you were about to read actually fit here in history. Here's who was king. Sometimes, even in the New Testament, you'll see things like uh, pagan rulers mentioned because the Bible and God is synchronizing the events with secular events. So you'll see Tiberius, Roman emperor mentioned, or Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea mentioned, or Herod, or one of the Herods, there's six Herods in the New Testament. But the Bible's showing us this stuff really happened. Young people, those of you in high school going to college and stuff, this is critical because you're going to hear all kinds of nonsense about the Bible and all kinds of crazy accusations. And over and over again, the events are anchored in space-time history and they line up. When investigated, you will see again and again, they line up historically and archaeologically and geographically. They line up. Becky and I just got back from Israel, and we were over there with a group, and again and again, as I was giving different lectures at different sites, I would read the text, we would be standing there, and I would say, so it says, this happened here, here, now look over here, there it is, and then look at verse 4, and the, there, there it is, and, look there, and, the, and there it is, just like God has said. So take great confidence, friends, church, that God meant what he said, and it's accurate. Next question, who is Hosea? Who's he writing to? Well, here, got to do a little history again. You have to remember about, again, I'm, I'm speaking in generalities today, but about 150 years before Hosea wrote, there was a civil war in Israel. And just like our civil war back in the 1860s, it was a world-changing event for our country. And likewise in Israel. And so Israel split into two nations. Some of you know this, still good review. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But about 930 BC, the Israel split into two nations. Ten of the tribes went north, and they retained the name Israel. Two of the tribes broke away, the breakaways, and they became known as Judah. That's critical to understand. Some of the prophets wrote to Judah. In fact, you see some of the kings listed in verse 1. He references kings of Judah. He also references kings of Israel. That's because he already, you, know, you have a divided nation here. And some of the prophets wrote to Israel on the top, the top tribes. Who's Hosea writing to? Hosea is writing to the top 10 tribes, which tells us something. Now, some of you don't like dates, not the fruit, but, you know, the, the times of history. There are a couple very important dates, and it'd be worth writing down because I will be referring to these through the series. There's a couple biggies, just like in American history. You know, you say 1776 or 9-11 or so. You know, there's, some, there's some dates you really should know if you're going to understand American history. There's some very important dates. Well, there's, some very, there's a couple key, there's a handful of really biggies in the Old Testament. And one of them is 722 BC. And if somebody is writing to the top 10 tribes, you know they're writing before 722 BC. Why? Because the largest empire of that day, the most brutal, bloodthirsty empire probably that's ever existed, the Assyrians, came down and attacked the top ten tribes and pillaged them, plundered them, 
and destroyed them and dispersed them and they've never been since. They still don't really exist to this day. And that occurred in 722. The top 10 tribes are still in existence when he's writing. So, ergo, that means he's writing before 722. He's writing to Israel, the top 10 tribes. That brings us to his marriage. And here we come to one of the strangest aspects of the book, at least from a human perspective. Some of you know where I'm going. Some of you don't yet. But this is, at least humanly, this is bizarre. So, Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We come to one of the more, let's say, unusual commands in the Bible. Then the Lord began to speak through Hosea. The Lord said to him, so this is God commanding Hosea. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, just so you're aware, we have a marriage policy here at our church that goes against everything in our marriage policy. (laughs) When our pastors are doing premarital counseling, uh, if that was the circumstances, you would get turned down flatly for your wedding here. We would not highly advise that. But God being God, he can command what he wants. He had a purpose for doing this. He commands Hosea to marry a sexually promiscuous woman. This obviously raised a lot of questions and eyebrows over the years. What does this mean? What's this about? Is this true? Is this really literal? Three prominent views have risen. One of them is that, well, she had these tendencies and she became promiscuous, but that doesn't seem to be what it says. It says she's promiscuous. There is a strong Jewish tradition that she wasn't a real person and that this is allegory. This is to make a point, but that doesn't seem to compose with this because, again, this is set in historical events. Probably the most obvious view, and I think it is the view that's accurate, is that Gomer was a sexually immoral woman and Hosea was instructed to marry her. After chapter 1, the only other mention of them is in chapter 3, if you turn there. Chapter 3, actually Gomer's not mentioned by name, but virtually all scholars believe that's who's being referred to here. She's either called that woman in Hebrew or NIV says your wife. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. She had left him. She had gone out with other lovers, been unfaithful, committed adultery. That's who God told him to marry in the first place. And then after she did it, God is now telling him, take her back. Forgive her. Restore her. I mean, this is a tall order. The Lord said to me, go show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, about an omer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. So there is his marriage There's the command, and there is the story. Now, obviously, the question is, what in the world's going on? Why would God command this? That brings us to chapter 4, 14, the last 11 chapters, the message of the book. And this is key. What becomes clear is that Hosea's marriage to a sexually immoral woman, many even believe a prostitute, was commanded by God to send a clear message to his people that he was extremely upset with. And that message is this. You are an adulterous people. You go whoring after other gods. 
you have been totally unfaithful to me, and yet I am merciful and willing to forgive. And so, like some of the other prophets who were instructed to do some pretty crazy things at times to get the point across symbolically, here, literally, God commands Hosea to marry promiscuous woman to get that message across. If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the heart cry of God for His people and their sin and their wickedness and betrayal comes out. And that message is that Gomer is behaving like God's people, unfaithful, adulterous. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you. So God's leveling a charge at His people, you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up. All who live in the land waste away. Beasts of the field, birds in the air, fish in the sea are swept away. Look over chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. And by the way, when I read this part, you'll notice that there's a reference to Ephraim. You might think, who's that? He's still talking to Israel. Ephraim was the largest tribe in Israel. So you had the 10 tribes up north, that, that part of the that country, that division. Ephraim was the largest of those tribes. And so often in Hosea, frequently, instead of referring to them as Israel, they're referred to by the name of the largest tribe, still talking about Israel. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you now have turned to prostitution. Israel's corrupt. I mean, it's pretty graphic language <laughs> here. You've turned to prostitution. Israel's corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. And they do not acknowledge the Lord. See, a very strong wording here from God. And the heart cry of God, that he's heartbroken, heart sick over his people and their sin and adultery and all the rest. Now, interesting, again, the prophets often have symbolic language. God often gives symbolic pictures. So in chapter 1, Gomer gives birth to three literal children, three real children. And they're named, there's a son and a daughter and a son. And they're named... Judgment-laden names. Let me use that phrase. Names that are judgment-laden to show the downward trajectory of Israel. So the first son is named Jezreel. That's not so much a negative name. It means God sows. You have the Jezreel Valley. That's how Israel started out. Then there's a daughter, Lo Ruhamah, which means not to be pitied. A little more negative. And then the name of the final, their last son, Lo Amai, is not my people. So there you see this downward trajectory. And the names, the point is each child symbolically represents this, you know, downward spiral, this downward deterioration of the people of God. They started out as God's vineyard. He planted them and then they sinned and he said they're not to be pitied. And then they got to a point where he says, they're not even my people. They are in sin and rebellion against me. And we'll get back to that shortly. You want to keep that in your mind. Now, the story at this point moves in an unexpected direction. So, Gomer represents the unfaithful people of God. Hosea represents God in his love and forgiveness. And this comes out again in chapter 3, 1 to 3. So, you have a powerful love story. But then, 
In chapter 4, moving forward, the whole thing takes kind of an unexpected turn. Meaning what? Well, you think this is a book about the love of God and it's a compelling love story. It is. But then from chapter 4 to 14, it doesn't really sound so much like a love story. It sounds more like a lover's quarrel. An intense lover's quarrel. And the language in the final 11 chapters is strong, I'd say the least, menacing, intimidating, and downright threatening. And you say, what's any of that got to do with love? So, for example, chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on Benjamin. Ephraim, or Israel, as God speaking, will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. I proclaim what is certain. So here's God saying, here's what's certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them. You say, that doesn't sound very lovey, dubby, like a flood of water. Ephraim, or Israel, is oppressed, trampled to judgment, intent on punishing idols. So there you go. Doesn't sound very loving. Or look at verses 14 and verse 15, also same chapter. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off and no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they're born their guilt and seek my face and their misery. They will earnestly seek me. So what do we have? We have God promising to attack, plunder, pillage, lay waste, and shred his people and tear them to pieces. And you say, that's an odd love story to say the least. Yes. And you might ask, well, what's any of this got to do with love? Glad you asked. And the answer is a lot. That leads us to the three major lessons of this book. So if you've been zoning out, I hope you're not. If you've been texting, I hope you're not. If you've been on social media, I hope you're not. Tune in. Here's the three lessons of this book that are critical. And this is the heart of the message this morning. The three main lessons coming out of Hosea are as follows. Numero uno. God's love is similar and different than what we'd expect. Anytime anybody in any culture reads the Bible, they're going to come to it, obviously, with cultural blinders on. Every culture has a slightly different view of paradigm of love, what it is, what it's not. And it's the same thing in Western culture. We have very romantic emotional categories for describing love. And Hosea is very clear in the book, God's love is similar, but also very different from what we would expect. For example, look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We read, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. But what? What's the text say? But he will heal us. He has injured us. Odd thing. But he will bind up our wounds. So, what are we saying? Because of the, of the distorted version of love that is commonly peddled in Western culture, that we, that's the way we see the world, which is what? Love in Western categories is a very sentimental, emotional, grandfatherly, laissez-faire, kind of anything goes, tolerant love. 
And it's important to clarify what the Bible then means when it says, because an American or a Westerner hears love of God, and immediately those are the categories that come to mind. Oh, yes. We forget God's love, like his other attributes, are part of a package. God's love is also bound up with his holiness, his goodness, his jealousy, his grace, his justice, and his mercy. I have brought up C.S. Lewis's book before the problem of pain. I want to bring it up this morning because I believe that chapter 3 in that book, Divine Goodness, is one of the best chapters that defines the love of, describes the love of God. C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, chapter 3, Divine Goodness. Here's what he says. It's just incredibly insightful. He says, when most of us think of love, at least in Western culture, we pretty much exclusively think in categories of kindness and affection and approval and tenderness and toleration, right? And that's pretty much how we view love. Lewis says this famously, and I've quoted this before, but it's, it's worth the price of admission this morning. Lewis says, you know what? Most of us don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. And he says that with great insight, meaning what? He says, we want a gentle, benevolent, somewhat senile, grandfatherly figure, Santa Claus, who looks at us and has virtually no expectations, nothing but approval, and who could be said that at the end of the day, a good time was had by all, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm a grandfather. I have grandkids. I got a bunch of grandkids. And I love them. And I love them fiercely. Sometimes I am fierce with them. But most of the time, I'm not. Most of the time, I'm on the floor giggling, tickling, fighting, wrestling, reading stories to the point where my kids say, Dad, would you take it easy and get, not get the kids riled up quite so much? And it's like, I'm their grandfather. Come on. Okay. C.S. Lewis wisely says, most of us want a grandfather in heaven. We don't want a father in heaven because that's our view of love. But then Lewis goes on to say, look it. The only people that ultimately expect nothing of you don't love you. If there are zero expectations and just total approval of anything goes, then you really don't care about somebody. That's why this chapter, Divine Goodness, is so insightful. He says when it comes to our, our true friends, our children, our spouses, we do expect a lot from them. Think about it. We have very exacting expectations of those that we care the most about. And just like God has for his people. So Lewis writes these words. This is just, this is good. He said, you ask for a loving God? Okay, you have one. Not a senile old grandfather that drowsily wishes you to be happy doing whatever you want. But a consuming fire himself. The love that made the world. Persistent. An artist's love for his work. Wise. Venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous relentless and as exacting as the love between a man and a woman. Close quote. Think about that. That is much closer to the biblical definition of love. So, when we read about the love of God, yes, there's an emotional component to it. Yes, there's a sentimental component to it. But not in Western categories as we often think. 
It is loyal, it is intense, and it is fierce. And it is similar and different than we'd expect. That is a first lesson coming out of Hosea. Second lesson coming out of Hosea. God's love, hear this young people, God's love leads to his warnings. So we often say warning is an act of love. You warn people you care about. You especially give warnings to people you love. God's love leads to his warnings about discipline. Look at chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. 9, chapter 7, chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. Think of this. God loves his people, and he warns them about, dis, about their discipline and, and their punishment if they don't turn around. So Hosea 9, 7 to 9. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person a maniac. The prophet along with my God is the watchman over Ephraim, yet the snares await him on all paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gibeah. So God's love leads to his warnings. Hebrews 12, 6 came to mind this week. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. So because of God's great love for us, he warns us about danger. And if you think about it, what parent doesn't do the same thing? What mother would let their child just go play with bleach or toilet bowl cleaner Without any kind of warning or protection. You'd say that mom doesn't love their child. What kind of dad would allow his young children to go in the garage and play with rat poison or razor blades? You'd say that is not a good dad. That's not a loving father. No, because he needs to warn them. There's all kinds of dangers around the average household. Stuff that can kill you very quickly. And we have to warn children all the time. Loving parents spend time warning their children about moral dangers and about physical dangers and even emotional dangers. Now, this leads to something interesting about the prophets and their preaching. Okay, you got all these warnings coming and these threats coming. Very interesting. Take, I'm going to go back up here for a high-level observation here for a moment. When you look at the 12 minor prophets and all the thundering messages of judgment that are threatened here and there, and the preaching, and the summons to repentance. You might ask, well, how often did the people repent after these messages were delivered? And it's very striking that in the 12 minor prophets from Hosea to Malachi, we only have recorded four, four examples of a positive response to the preaching of the prophets. That's it. Out of the 12 books, and all the messages given, and all the oracles delivered, only four times is it recorded that there was a positive response to the message. They are Joel chapter 2. We'll see that next week. Jonah chapter 3. Haggai chapter 1. And Malachi chapter 3. Joel 2. Jonah 3. Haggai 1. Malachi 3. Those are the only four positive responses to the preaching. And perhaps the most surprising is that the foreign Ninevites who were Assyrians, the same people that had brutally pillaged them. This is one of the most brutal cultures on the planet. The Assyrians. In the book of Jonah, provide the most thorough example of repentance anywhere in the Minor Prophets. 
And it was one of Israel's most dreaded, bloodthirsty neighbors, the Assyrian people. For the most part, the Israelites did not respond. And that's a sobering reminder and reflection on the minor prophets. Third lesson, final lesson before we come to the summons. Third lesson. So let's review. God's love, number one, is similar and different than we'd expect. Number two, God's love leads to very clear warnings, as it does from parents, about discipline and punishment and danger. And the third major lesson coming from Hosea is that God loves his elect with an everlasting love. God loves his elect with an everlasting love. Turn to chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. I hear the wisping of Bible pages. That's good. That's good. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then look at verses 7 to 9. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high. I will by no means exalt them. But then notice the shift in language. Verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like... Adama, how can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. That's pretty intense language. That's lover's language. In chapter 2, verse 19, there's a Hebrew word used, chesed. Chesed, H-E-S-E-D in English. If you transliterate the word, it means God's loyal, covenant, faithful, unending love. And it's a, it's a Hebrew word that's a very intense word. God loves his own. God loves his elect, his chosen. Now, that raises an obvious question. Somebody even asked me last week, well, does God love everyone? And the answer from the Bible is, yes, he does love everyone. But there's a caveat. God does love everyone. But he doesn't love everyone the same. It's very clear that God has put his affections on some sinners and not others for reasons known to him. They call this God's elect. And it's very clear God has a very special covenant love for his elect. God does love everyone. I can say to an audience, a preacher can say to an audience, D.L. Moody, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards could proclaim to an audience, God loves you. That's true. But God has a special love for his elect, his chosen. A classic example that shows this powerfully, we talked about the three children in chapter 1, right? That were named for this downward trajectory of Israel. You know, God sows and then not to be pitied and then not my people. Only one chapter later in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, those three names are reversed for God's people. It is a stunning example of God's mercy for his people. If you go back to chapter 2 for just a minute. Verses 21 to 23. You will see the reversal of those names. And again, it's a stunning example of the mercy of God. As those three names are reversed. Those judgment-laden names in a remarkable display of mercy, are turned around and put in the positive. And God says, that's how I will view my people. 
In that day, verse 21, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her, that's what Jezreel means, for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to turn Jezreel around. I'm going to turn around not pitied. And I will say to the one, not my people, you are my people. And they will say what? You are my God. You are my God. That is one of the most remarkable displays of God's chesed love, his mercy, his gracious, and his fierce commitment to those he calls his own. All right, time to land a plane. Two questions. Number one, have you accepted God's loving offer of salvation? In an audience this size, I know there are many who believe, but I know there are some who do not. Some of you are lost today. You spiritually have not made that commitment or you don't really understand this all. The Bible teaches the only way to find lasting joy and be rescued from hell is to flee from sin, believe in Jesus as God's only son, and follow him. The Bible says that's the only way to escape the coming wrath. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get saved by being baptized. You don't get saved by being religious or going to church or singing in the choir or being a good religious moral person. You must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's loving offer. And God does love you. Have you accepted his loving offer to be one of his own? And second and last question. If you do know Christ and you say, yes, I'm born again. The spirit of God is alive in me. I know him. He is, he is mine and I am his. Then the question coming out of Hosea that has to be asked is this. Are you tolerating an area of sin in your life that will lead to God's discipline in your life? Maybe painfully. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 to 2. You have a great reminder here. Chapter 14, 1 and 2. Return to me, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. That's true of some of us here today. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. And then lastly, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him realize these things. Who is discerning? Let him understand that the ways of the Lord are right. You, if you know God, you know that. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the, the rebellious stumble in them. Friends, the Bible teaches this. When we tolerate blatant sin in our life, and if you are, you know what that sin is right now. You know you've been tolerating it. It will lead to misery. It will lead to disintegration. It will lead to humiliation. It may lead to unintended consequences. And it will likely lead to discipline, maybe painfully. The exact opposite of what God intends for his people. The Bible says God doesn't want to just deliver a sinner from hell. He wants them to enjoy him. The Bible says God doesn't want to just be known. He wants to be enjoyed. Isaiah 35.10 speaks of those who run after God as being, quote, overcome with joy. When's the last time you could describe yourself as overcome with joy? See, the honest truth is that the Epicureans, the ancient Greek philosophers who exalted pleasure, they didn't have it all wrong. 
There is a very strong Epicurean hedonist strain in the Bible. The problem is the Epicureans didn't go far enough. Why? Because we think that by playing around with shopping and social media and iPhones and jet skis and TikTok and all the rest, that we're going to find satisfaction. And the Bible says that's nuts. The Bible says that's a myth. There's an old-fashioned Hebrew term, crazy. Nutso. Uh, not really, but that's, that's what it is. It's like someone, and, and put it in Hosea's term, it would be, it'd be like an adulterer thinking that I'm going to find more satisfaction in my adultery than I am in a loving, committed, joy-filled marriage. That's just nuts. And yet that's what we think when we only pursue and dabble in pleasure and we don't pursue the pleasure giver, God. Hosea is a powerful reminder of God's unshakable love. Three commentaries to recommend. There's lots of good stuff, but Pastor Tim does a great job in our library stocking it with the best. In three of the commentaries that will be available, we recommend on an entry level, The Message of the Prophets by Daniel Hayes. Very good. Very, that's, a, that's a really good one. Intermediate level, The Message of the Twelve by Furnate Yates. Also very good. A little more advanced. And if you want to go more advanced, the commentary on the book of the 12, Michael Shepherd, he teaches at Cedarville University, New Testament scholar. That one does interact a lot more with the Hebrew text. So it is more technical and advanced, but it would be good to have a good study Bible and at least one commentary to track along with this. You will get the most out of it. Father, thank you for the minor prophets. God, I pray that this series would be very good for our life in the life of our church right now. Hear us as we raise our voice. And may we be different. May there be more conversions, more who are saved, and more baptisms on the other side of this series than we have right now. In Jesus' name, amen.